Welcome to Meraki Mentors, a podcast featuring women who create. We interview creatives from every field and around the globe to discuss art, risk-taking, and what it means to live a creative life. Here's your host, Candace Howes. All right, welcome back everyone to Meraki Mentors. This is your host, Candace, and I am super, super excited to introduce our guest today. We are speaking to Javel Tamayo from the Authority Collective. Um, for anyone who might be familiar with their work and seen them on Instagram or followed them online, um, you know that they showcase the work of amazingly talented um, photographers who come from underrepresented backgrounds. So I am going to step back for a moment and let Javel um, introduce herself and um, tell us a little bit more about Authority Collective in her own words. So thank you so much, Javel, for being here. Sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me, Candace. We're really grateful that you reached out and we're interested in what we do, um, especially as a starting organization. We're really hoping to to get the word out more about what the Authority Collective is. Um, so, yeah, my name is Jovel Tamayo. Um, I'm an independent documentary photographer and filmmaker based in Seattle, Washington, um, but I grew up in New Jersey um, and I'm a co-founder and founding member of the Authority Collective. Um, and what we are is a group of women, um, trans non-binary um, and gender non-conforming people of color uh, working in the photography, filmmaking, um, the virtual reality industries, really any um, industry um, where folks produce visual imagery. Um, and we're really working to try to build a culture of accountability within these different industries. That's fantastic. Um, and I guess we can start off by, especially since you are one of the founding members, is what was kind of the trigger that kind of started this entire idea? Was it kind of one person? Was it just kind of collectively coming together and seeing these voids in the industry? Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just a single moment, um, you know, so this kind of came about um, a couple years ago. Um, so you know, mid 2017, um, an amazing initiative called Woman Photograph had launched. Um, and I think Diversify Photo, which is a database of photographers of color had launched as well. Um, so all these discussion, discussions regarding diversity and representation in our industry were really coming to the forefront. Um, and you know, those databases are so, so important, but I think amongst like industry decision makers, those discussions were just that they were discussions um, and we were still, you know, finding ourselves trying to catch up with each other after we went to a conference or another professional networking event um, to debrief about what happened, you know, the microaggressions we faced, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a racist decision we had seen one of the decision makers talk about or make. Um, so we're really like coming together you know, in our own small groups, uh, maybe over the phone, like right after these events and debriefings. So um, after doing that for some time, we wanted to create a space for each other um, to not only just talk about these issues, but really strategize around them. Um, so what we did was we planned a retreat um, in Los Angeles in November 2017 um, for women and non-binary people of color working in photography and film. Um, and like at that retreat, we, you know, we had a whole agenda. We talked about 
these issues we were facing, we like made a list of the different things we wanted to discuss, um, made a list of potential solutions. Um, and then before we left, we wanted to come out with something that we are going to do, like not just um, as an individual on the individual level, but collectively. Um, so through that discussion, the Authority Collective was born because, you know, we really wanted to address, you know, resources, access, how people are connecting to to the decision makers. And we wanted to find a way to address um, some of these oppressive practices happening in our industry. Um, so when we came up with some of these solutions, we realized we should just make a group out of it so we can tackle all of these things as a united force. Um, and we came up with the name Authority Collective because, you know, through these discussions, we realized like, you know, who gave these white men, you know, the authority to tell us who could be successful and who isn't successful? Like who set these standards for what a good photograph is? Um, you know, who decided, who created that authority? So, you know, we wanted to take back some of that authority um, to claim and reclaim um, that power to, you know, to decide how we vision our own communities and how we vision the world. Um, so really that's where the name came from. Um, and it's really what informs a lot of um, our actions is this idea that, you know, we've been told throughout our whole careers, like you, maybe you don't know enough, like, you know, you just don't have as much experience as like X, Y, Z person. Um, but, you know, in many ways, while we're all still learning, in many ways, we are more experienced um, than some folks in the industry who come from a certain background. Um, so we're really like looking to to step into that role and decide for ourselves and our communities, like who gets to be a successful image maker. That's really awesome. And I love um, I love hearing that story because even thinking about the name, like I never thought much about it, just even as, you know, a person just kind of viewing um, the work that you all do. But it's it's really a great concept to think about authority to think about having that kind of agency and control in our industry and in the work we create because we do end up in situations where everything is kind of funneling out of this one this one lens this one voice when obviously the world is created or not created but made of so many different perspectives and people so I like that you brought in that idea of authority and who's actually kind of making those decisions yeah, because it really kind of ties back to, you know, we're all image makers. And the thing with, with being an image maker is that it comes with a lot of responsibility. You know, the images we produce are what people mm -hmm. see. They're the front page. They're, you know, the front of the magazines. They're what people are scrolling past on Instagram or social media. Um, so that's really, you know, for folks who are able to, to consume those images, it's what's defining the view of the world. And, you know, we really took issue with the fact that you know, for most of history, a white cisgender heteronormative patriarchal lens like dominated that visual history. Um, and not to say that's inherently a problem, but the fact that it's dominated and erased some of the other narratives is a huge problem. Um, so we really wanted to address that and we really wanted to to take back some of that space so that, you know, our communities were being fairly, you know, represented in not just ways that involved suffering or pain, you know, because with a lot of black and brown communities, a lot of pictures that we see that are in the newspapers or magazines are about 
pain and sadness and trauma, but our communities are so much more than that. And we really want to, um, to give other image makers, you know, from our own communities, the opportunity to have their images seen and add to that visual narrative and that visual history. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I love that so much. And I think it's, it's an important perspective to have because a lot of people think that it's almost like an attack or saying that the, like the perspectives we've seen are wrong, but it really is, like you said, just being able to, to broaden that scope and see the perspectives that have kind of been um, hidden all those years. So I think that's awesome. You know, your mission outside of what you spoke on with authority is also having access and having accountability. In what ways do you think sometimes access can be kind of um, off limits to certain marginalized communities? And in what ways do you all kind of try to break those boundaries and create more points of access? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's such a complex issue because there are so many different layers we can look at, you know, not just our identities themselves, but also like, you know, class and, um, you know, geography and visa privilege and all those things. Um, but what we really want to to focus on is how, you know, our identities are preventing us from accessing certain resources because of like, you know, certain, like, you know, because of racism that might be embedded in a lot of these institutions. Um, so, you know, that's one end and that mm -hmm. kind of ties into the accountability portion. So for example, if, um, you know, folks are trying to work for a certain magazine or get accepted into a certain um, program, but everybody on that staff or that jury is all white, that says a little something about how they'll be making the decisions to who receives that opportunity and what type of discussions are taking place. Um, and we really feel that, you know, people, people of color are often blocked from those job opportunities and professional relationships because of, you know, these white centered standards of like what professionalism is culture fit. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. also like all these, like, you know, anecdotes about harassment and discrimination, um, so that's a really big part of it is, you know, maybe a person of color, a woman of color not getting an opportunity because they don't fit within that organization's idea of, you know, a teammate. But maybe we want to question, like, how they decide what that culture fit is. Um, and, you know, another big part is is distance from resources. So I think this, like, applies to multiple industries or just, like, many industries is that it's about who you know, and that's that's really true in the visual media industry, but I think it really makes it hard for people to get their foot in the door. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people want to hire people they can trust, people who maybe they're closer to, people who remind them of themselves. And when not enough, you know, people of color are in these decision-making roles, we start to see the same kind of people getting the same opportunities. Um, so what we're really trying to do is break that cycle. Um, and it's definitely, it's not an easy, there's no easy answer, you know, and I don't know like what the exact answer to completely break that cycle is. Um, but what we're, we're trying to do for our community members is, you know, share some of these resources um, for some of us who already do have our foot in the door and are getting jobs from these institutions. Like we want to share what we know. Um, 
you know, we want to spread the opportunities. We want to invite people to meetups and portfolio reviews and conferences that they might not have known about before um, because they weren't already within that community. Um, we're trying to be as upfront about like pricing, marketing, um, you know, how to navigate the industry, because I think many of us felt that when we started, you know, a lot of this was very mysterious to us. Like it felt like no one was really telling us what to do, how to, how to talk to people, how to price things. Um, and some of that felt like it was because we're women or non-binary people of color. Um, so we really want to break that and like mm -hmm. as much as possible, connect people with the resources they need so that they can, you know, at least get that foot in that door. Um, and then we can go from there, you know, and kind of start, you know, holding institutions accountable um, as more of us enter the industry and, you know, start getting work, we're getting a little bit closer to leadership and decision making um, and influencing change from a higher level. Um, so it's kind of the other, you know, that side of the accountability is like connecting, you know, once we as we give people access, we're getting people um, closer to the point where they can um, influence these decisions and hold these publications accountable. You all basically kind of like keep a database for members of the collective, um, or is it more of just kind of like a very kind of organic thing that happens of just kind of sharing opportunities as they come along? Yeah, so far it's been pretty organic. Um, we do have a couple like Google Sheets and databases that we circulate around. And I think like within these different groups that we're a part of, um, like Women Photograph and Diversify Photos, folks like share resources within that as well. Um, so like if we do have a resource, you know, we try to share it with the community so people have access to it. If there's something like we're able to like open up, we try to open it up. There was, I know, I want to say it might have been like a month or so ago. Um, the New York Times did a really cool article on the collective, and it was really interesting even for me because they talked about how you have said to lack of um, women of color, non-binary people of color in photojournalism, which is interesting to me because as myself being someone who likes photography, worked in certain journalism areas, it's really interesting. You don't see yourself there, but it doesn't always, you know, click until you get there and it's like, hmm. What would you tell someone um, that you believe women of color and non-binary people bring to the visual industry that um, that we wouldn't typically see if they were absent? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just like a balance, you know, the balance. We just don't have that right now. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we're not going to have this, you know, your vision of equality for a long time. We just have to be patient. Maybe in 20 years, we'll have like perfect representation and diversity and equality. And, you know, a lot of us are just thinking we don't have that time to wait. You know, we're here now and we have stories now and we want to share them now. And I think, you know, as folks coming from marginalized identities, we see our own communities in hugely different ways than outsiders might. Um, and that's a really big discussion too that's been happening within the industry is, you know, the, the benefits of both insider and outsider narratives. Um, and I think there's a lot of validity mm -hmm. to that discussion, but at the same time, the fact of the matter is that outsider narratives have been the dominant narrative. People coming in from the outside and making observations about what they think our communities are like is what 
-hmm. currently dominates our media. Um, you know, so as people coming from these communities, we, we see things, you know, with a completely different lens, we're able to see more nuance than what an outsider might see. We're able to see joy and, you know, mundanity that other people might see. And I think like a lot of people don't look for that um, when they're covering outsider mm -hmm. communities because you just want to find the story. Um, but I think mm -hmm. the more people we have um, within the visual media industry who have access to, to publications and outlets, um, the better balance we'll see um, in our visual history, in our narratives. You know, our communities being like erased and misrepresented and underrepresented, that's a really real thing. And that's not only, you know, not just erasure where our communities aren't covered at all, but also completely like misrepresented in the way that um, some of our communities have been used and like weaponized um, to inform like certain like racist policies or sexist policies. Um, and that affects real exactly. lives. So we really want to, you know, stress that it's not just about representation. It's not just about having us there making pictures, you know, getting it published, but it's about, you know, changing how our communities are treated um, by other people and by the governments that we're, you know, participating in. Um, because these images have real effects on us, you know, like, and I think that's something a lot of people might not mm -hmm. understand. Um, it's like really not just a numbers game. It's not just about adding like one or two brown people to your group and like, you know, calling it a day. It's really about changing how we're seen. It's so funny that you said that. I was, um, last night I was watching, what was it? I was watching PBS and they're doing, um, they're doing a really amazing, um, basically like documentary and they're like documenting, um, the period, um, nearly after the civil war, kind of explaining reconstruction, but in like a much deeper space. Mm -hmm. And they got to, um, a section where they were saying, you know, there were so much, um, progress being made. And then that's when we start seeing images, menstrual shows, those kind of things that was basically published just for the sake of kind of trying to stop some of the progress that was being made in the country at that time. So it's, it's so, it's so telling seeing something like that. And then hearing you say that because we, we do get caught up in, oh, it's just images or, oh, we need to give more people work. But like you said, doing um, the work to have more balance and more representation ultimately affects how we, how we view each other just as people. Yeah, and I think like I'm really glad that you brought that specific example up just because I mean it, it's it's a key example. It's like those types of things um are really what defined these publications. Like a lot of publications got their start from these kind of like anthropological images where, you know, a mm -hmm. person will fly into a different country and just make images and you know, there's this this um like the before and after device, you know, where you see like, oh, here's mm -hmm. the black or brown savage before, you know, look at look what, what they're wearing, exactly. look at their look at their demeanor. But now that we're here, the Westerners, they're educated and wearing suits and ties and dresses and look what we did. And that's so deeply problematic. Like you see it in, you know, different countries, like you know, with the U.S. and other, like, imperialist nations, but, like, you see how that image was used as basically evidence as to why 
um, imperialism should continue and, you know, <laughs> what a great job everyone is. And, you know, I was reading a little bit about like um, photographer Dean Worcester, who had, um, you know, spent some time in the Philippines um, in the early 20th century. And I I'm from the Philippines. So it's kind of what you know, drew me to reading about him, but how his work, again, like that anthropological, um, just documenting all the different people here, um, style contributed to, it was basically used as evidence as to why America should, um, you know, continue to occupy the Philippines. Um, and when you look at some of these mm -hmm. images, you know, they're, you know, they're just kind of straightforward, like these are the people here. Um, but, you know, I was reading and reading and got to a point where I saw that these images were used, um, you know, he worked a lot for National Geographic. So he kind of made this argument um, to the editor and the publisher at the time that like, this is why we should move to, to mostly photo. Um, so before like National Geographic was a mostly text mm -hmm. publication, but then his images were just, you know, he was really advocating for them to get seen and then the publisher worked with him and that was where you know national geographic kind of pivoted um to a visual focused magazine um and i thought that was just so interesting because i'm like wow this story like this particular these photos are why you know national geographic became this kind of like photography powerhouse and like when you look at different publications, you start to notice a lot of them have this um, darker origin story of, you know, how they were portraying people and how they use those portrayals to turn a profit. There's something we talked about recently um, at one of our board meetings is how a lot of what we're doing, I think, may be read as a challenge or as antagonistic or, you know, as like, look at these troublemakers trying to shake up the industry. Um, and yes, we're trying to do that. We're trying to change the industry. We're trying to um, get people to question themselves more and question these power structures mm -hmm. more. But the, at the end of the day, it's, you know, all of this is coming from love. It's not like we want to cancel everybody and start from scratch. It's we want to help mm -hmm each other, you know, within our community, we want to help other people in our industry just learn and get better and, you know, figure out how to actually solve these problems that have been compounded basically by generations of um, imbalance. Yeah, absolutely. What was kind of your um, motivation to become a photographer, to work in visual media? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I've always been drawn to the arts and to storytelling. Um, in high school, I was part of um, the yearbook staff and, you know, a little bit of the newspaper staff. So I really liked, I liked storytelling. Like I liked meeting different people and kind of using my camera or writing as a way to meet um, other folks who I might not have normally connected with on my mm -hmm. own. Um, and, you know, when I went to school, I was really like dead set on this idea that I'm going to be, you know, maybe a lawyer or <laughs> something like that. You know, I was studying political science, um, but I, I stuck with my daily paper in college. Um, I ended up being a photo editor and, um, and the editor. Um, and I realized really how much I love photography and photojournalism, how much I love like entering these different situations and, um, 
you know, telling stories through images. Mm -hmm. From there, it kind of took me a while to, <laughs> to figure out how to make a career of it. But I think because of how hard it's been to be a full-time photographer, be a full-time journalist, um, it's proved to me like this is really what I want to do. And this is um, what I want to stick with just because I believe in the power of still images. Uh, I'm doing a little bit more video now. So, I mean, you know, there's that too, but I really believe like when you look at a single still image, there's like a lot of power that can have in um, affecting how someone sees the world or um, an individual or a group of people. Um, and that's really why I've stuck with it. That's, that's really awesome. How did you kind of go about, you know, pursuing it yourself? Did you kind of take on projects yourself and say, this is what I'm going to do? Or did you kind of like reach out and pitch places, you know? Yeah, it's such a, it's such a hard it's a hard journey when you're trying to be a photographer. It's funny when folks ask me that, like nowadays, like, oh, how can I do what you're doing? I'm like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I realized in college, like pretty close to the end of um, my undergraduate career. So um, when I decided that I wanted to go into this, I started looking at looking for other photographers because where I went to school, there wasn't a photojournalism program. There weren't really other documentary or photojournalist um, documenting photographers or photojournalists that I could um, look up to or connect with for mentorship. Mm -hmm. like I was looking on Tumblr. I was looking on Facebook. I was looking, uh, I think Instagram had just started. So looking for other photojournalists. Um, and, you know, as I did that, I, I found more and more people who were my age and doing what I wanted to do. So I really just followed their work. Um, I looked at the types of conferences and workshops they were going to, because for me, you know, going to grad school wasn't really an option or doing an unpaid internship wasn't an option because I couldn't afford mm -hmm. that. So I was looking at the types of opportunities they were seeking out that maybe were within, you know, financial mm -hmm. reach. Um, so I started going to conferences, um, started meeting more folks, started going to workshops. Um, and I had applied for an internship at a big photography magazine, um, my senior year of college, like my last semester, um, and it's with a magazine called Aperture Magazine. Um, so that was a really short-term opportunity. It really um, didn't pay well, so I wasn't able to stick through it to the end um, because, you know, to be frank, like, I think it is difficult for a lot of people to pursue those opportunities just because they don't, you have to pay for your travel, you know, your time and all these things. So you kind of have to run that like cost benefit analysis. Exactly. Um, but, you know, in, in just my short time there, and it was a really great team and really cool place to work. Um, I learned about some of the classic photographers, you know, I did a lot of I was working with the digital marketing team. So I did a lot of social media um, and reading through the magazines. So I learned a lot about who were the classic you know, photographers people look to, who are some of the up and coming contemporary photographers. I learned about terms. I learned about, you know, museums, places where people like display their work, um, how people talk about their work. Um, so that was a really interesting experience for me. Um, and it really inspired me to look for opportunities where I could make photos. Um, but it definitely took a while because um, my partner and I ended up moving to the West Coast um, this was about five years ago, and we both had wanted to do freelance photography. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in a partnership with both of you are trying to do that, it's not the easiest thing. Um, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but long story short, we worked a lot of jobs. You know, we had a lot of, you know, odd jobs here and there, had a lot of part-time gigs. 
Um, but in the meantime, we're trying to make our own work, trying to shadow different journalists, trying to learn from our local community. Um, we're in Seattle now, and there's a really um, strong photojournalism community here. Mm -hmm. So connecting with these colleagues, learning from them, um, finding out their path, and then kind of doing work on our own time. And from there, we're able to get you know, more opportunities, more access to workshops, connections to editors who could hire us for stories. So it really was a long, you know, it took a while to build not only the network, but to build a portfolio that we could use to apply for these different opportunities. I think it's it's hard to to say like, okay, just follow these steps and you'll be a successful photographer just because there's no there's no single answer for how to do it. You know, I think like depending on your resources and what you can and can't do, um, you have to, you have to try different things. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were building our portfolios, we were doing a lot of work for like cheap or no pay. And that's really, it's not okay. But at the same time, it was able to um, connect us with other opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really suggest that people do that, you know? So it really depends on who you are. Um, in an ideal world, if I could go back, I wouldn't be doing free work. Um, but I think at the same time, that helped me figure out what I liked and didn't like covering, um, what I was interested in photographing. Yeah, and now, yeah, I've been full time freelancing, um, and it's still it's still a hustle. Absolutely, <laughs> but so far so good. <laughs> That's awesome, and I think that um, one thing that I really take from what you said too, which I think is so important, is really kind of digging your heels in and getting experience, like you said, any way that you can, and also really studying and being able to, um, you know, be attentive enough to see, like you said, what events are important, what other people in your industry are doing, kind of being able to model other actions that people, you know, in photojournalism are doing. I think it's so important, regardless of what background you're coming from, or like you said, what resources you have, that if you are getting yourself out there, creating work, studying what kind of things you want to do, ultimately, you can basically be able to kind of carve your own path to, to what your goals are. Yeah, totally. And yeah, just like doing all of that. And like, really, if you want to do it, then even if you're working other jobs, just finding the time when you can, you know, I think there's this like, idea that we all have to find success like in our 20s and then like have it all figured out by a certain age but I think um more and more folks are opening up to the idea that that's not true you know people do things at their own pace exactly. whatever your pace is um if it's something you want to do if you just like stick with it you know even if it's like once a week making photos on your own time there's room for you if you want to you know if you decide to to freelance like there's room I think like that's another thing is that a lot of people come into the industry with this idea that we really have to compete with each other and that we have to be like cagey about information mm -hmm. and resources because we're all in competition. Um, but that's like another thing we're trying to challenge with the Authority Collective is that there's like work to go around. You know, there's, um, what is it called? Like the abundance mindset, right? It's like, there's enough, there's enough of everything. We just need to figure out how to redistribute you know, those resources and um, especially because a lot of it is sitting at the top, right? So how can we make sure some of that is being like spread to the people who need it and who are looking for it? Um, and I think that abundance mindset also helps us think about each other as community rather than competition. I absolutely love that idea. I think 
I think that's so much more of a um a nurturing environment that can foster more more work and a more positive mindset than to always feel like we're going at each other over the same over the last crumb or <laughs> the last meal. Yeah. There's enough, we just have to look for it, we have to find it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's like and we can help each other and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I know that you mentioned that um, kind of like in um, in going around and taking different jobs, you were able to see like what you were good at and what kind of um, assignments you like. What what's kind of personally some of your favorite um, like subjects or um, places or assignments that you like to shoot? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I really more recently um, have been trying to do more personal work about my family and my background. Um, so I think mm. I mentioned, um, I'm Filipino. I was born in the Philippines. Um, so I've been really looking for the stories around the diaspora that, um, you know, I can connect to in some way that I can also, um, use to connect with other people and help them share their story, um, through the skills that I have. It's something that like it's always on my mind. Like when I'm home, I photograph my family. Um, I'm always brainstorming ways to photograph um, my community. And I've been back to the Philippines a couple of times um, to do some research on a few stories there. And that's been really powerful for me because my family left when I was really young. And um, this was last year that I had gone back. So going back was you know, this whole like homecoming experience, like this is my home. Um, mm -hmm. This is where I'm from. And, you know, what really um, was disheartening for me was how like certain narratives of my country that were perpetuated through through media and through, um, you know, like that, um, what is it, the colonial mentality, you know, that maybe family members have about what my country is. Um, it was just disheartening to you know, to, to go to the Philippines and realize a lot of that's not true. Um, but also reckon with the fact that I had held it in me for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, if that makes sense, you know, like yeah. really, you know, I was just shocked at how much of that, that I was like, that I actually believed. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do right now is finding ways to, to challenge that um, and also to help heal my own community, because I think a lot of us struggle with some of that, like internalized oppression and colonial mentality mm -hmm. um, that had been passed on to us, you know, by our parents or grandparents um, and like finding ways to to push back against that, not just like here in you know, in the U.S., but also like back home um, and in other places in the diaspora. And I think like images and art have a lot of potential to um to to push back on that and challenge that um but you know like at here you know aside from some of those long-term stories like I think for me really photographing people who have been underrepresented um or erased is really important because I think, you know, as we talked about before, like having that different lens, like as a woman of color, as an immigrant, like, you know, I'm constantly thinking about like, what different lens can I bring to this that somebody else might not have? Like, how can I, you know, image this community or this individual in a way um, that is maybe more true to, to how they feel they should be represented um, and thinking ab about like assignments more collaboratively. Definitely. Um, and that's, that's great having that such a personal experience and being able to kind of use your work to not only 
explore that yourself, but also to kind of think about broader broader topics that kind of um, appeal to the other communities. I think that's that's awesome to have that. What's next? Like, what kind of things do you all have coming up for the collective or hope to do? Um, what's what's on the horizon? Yeah. So okay. So we we had that first initial you know founding meetup um, in November 2017, and we launched in April 2018. Um, and since then, we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. Um, we have a ten person you know, nine or 10 person boards kind of been floating around as folks, um, you know, have to pay more attention to their other commitments. Um, but we are all volunteer. Um, so something we've realized is just like how much work it takes to organize and, you know, to try to create this space. Um, so as far as what's next we're you know, we are really hoping to, to get more organized and to establish, um, a more formal structure so that we can better provide resources for our community and um, also establish ourselves as part of the industry and that we're not going away until um, some of our concerns are heard. Um, so, you know, our first focus is really the idea of like building from within and providing each other with community, providing each other with that space to grow. Um, and helping each other build their skills and networks. And kind of secondary to that is that idea of accountability. So that's something, you know, we have a lot of different actions we're brainstorming. Um, we're about to launch um, a blog mm -hmm. where we're going to do um, an essay series um, revolving around industry accountability and the different ways people can um, address it, take action or educate themselves. We recently um, released an open letter to um, an arts foundation called the Magenta Foundation um, in conjunction with Women Photograph and Natives Photograph um, to challenge their partnership with um, Toronto Dominion Bank because of TD Bank's you know, connection with pipeline projects. So, you know, we wrote a statement about that with some demands and um, potential actions and solutions they can bring to the table to start the discussion. And then prior to that, we had released an open letter to um, large camera companies challenging them on how um, not only their diversity and representation among their like ambassador programs and contests, but how these opportunities keep honoring that problematic colonial lens where you know images of black and brown suffering are put on a pedestal as like what is a good what makes a good image so you know in that open letter we offered some actionable steps these like camera companies and photo organizations can take um for example like inviting an equitable amount of decision makers of color to sit on their juries or you know, actively engaging with marginalized photographers um, to apply for sponsorship opportunities or gears. Um, gear. So as far as those interventions go, we're really thinking about it as how can we, um, you know, bring folks to the table, you know, and have discussions and like call people in as much as possible um, versus, mm -hmm. you know, just writing a statement, you know, criticizing a certain group and leaving it at that. Like, we really want to talk about solutions. Like, how can we fix this? Because, you know, as these organizations, they don't, they're not really going anywhere. You know, they're, they're established and they're institutions that have really built a reputation for, the, for themselves. And we think like with that power, they have the ability to, um, to change how we're doing things and how we're seeing things. So we want to, to connect to them directly as Authority Collective. And also thinking about how to not burn out 
um, because like I think a lot of these a lot of these topics are you know they're either painful or they make us angry or they're disheartening and when we're talking about mm -hmm. them all the time when we're talking about you know like the racism the sexism the transphobia the homophobia like in our industries like it can really wear down on us um, and I think what a lot of folks might not get is that we're also trying to make it in this industry we're also you know doing this full-time we're really trying to to succeed in the same way that everyone else is but in addition mm -hmm. to all of that we're also trying to organize for accountability and access for our own communities for other women of color for other non-binary people of color and um really anyone else who's who's felt that barrier um to becoming a mm -hmm. photographer or filmmaker so, you know, it's like looking for those moments of, you know, what makes us happy and like what, you know, like looking at each other's work. And like when we look on Instagram, we're really trying to like boost everyone up. We're trying to share the work from other folks in our community. And honestly, I think, I mean, it brings me joy. I'm sure it brings, a, you know, a lot of other folks just like happiness just to see, um, you know, our peers finding that success within our industry and making these images and just like that visibility I think is that fuel to like keep us it's, it's a part of that fuel to keep us going yeah I know that has to be such a such a rewarding experience when you put in so much labor but you get to see people responding to it and like you said finding those opportunities that you know wouldn't wouldn't have been there without all of those hours you put in yes Totally. And like finding community with each other, you know, like we did the um, lit list, mm -hmm. which was a list of 30 um, under the radar photographers with marginalized identities um, last year. And it was produced by um, an L.A. based photographer named Oriana Corin. And they're an, another another co-founder of the Authority Collective. Um, but, you know, we like it's been so great hearing from some of those folks who were awarded with the lit list um, mentioned that you know, they've either connected with another awardee and were able to collaborate or they were able to refer each other to jobs um, or somebody had found them through the lit list and hired them for like a magazine shoot. Um, so it's like really cool to see some of that happening. And there's definitely a lot more work to do. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, and like in terms of what's next, it's really just looking for that balance of like, here's what we have to do, but also let's celebrate and like let's celebrate how far we've gotten so far that is that is so awesome and i'm so excited to to see all of the work that you all are are doing and that will be um produced in the future thank you so i'll have you um play our fun game that we like to call meraki picks which are like all of our favorite things um that we love talking about <laughs> All right. So the first one is, what's a song that's kind of been stuck in your head lately? Ah, okay. Um, okay. Well, I I just watched. Well, I didn't just, but I watched Us a couple of weeks ago. But the, um, like the tethered remix of I Got Five on it <laughs> has been stuck yes. in my head, like the creepy <laughs> version. Um, I know. Yeah, just like really just humming through my brain the whole day, like very creepily. Um. Oh, but you know, also Tomboy by Princess Nokia, all about Princess Nokia. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Okay, those are those are good. I um, it was so funny because I went to see the movie like a week or two ago, and I like kept going to YouTube and playing it, and then I was like, "Why am I doing this? I'm creeping myself out." <laughs> yeah, and my partner and I keep playing a game where we're like scaring each other, and we play the song in our phones. 
That is hilarious. Okay. Um, what was the last um the last book that you read? Uh, last book I read is this book called Insurrecto by Gina Apostol. Um, she's a Filipina writer. Um, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> it sounds intriguing, so I'm gonna have to read it. Yes, definitely look up the premise. Especially if you, you know, like as a journalist or like a documentary photographer and filmmaker. Um, yeah, there are a lot of themes that I really connected with. <laughs> awesome. And last but not least, um, what is a quote or maybe a saying um, that kind of keeps you going? Oh, Okay, so I actually had brought this up at our last Authority Collective meetup. We met up um, last week or a couple weeks ago in New York City. Um, so I don't know who said this or like exactly what the quote is. Um, and it's a little cheesy, but it's the one where, you know, like if you don't have a seat at the table, like build your own table or mm-hmm. bring your own chair or something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> You know, like kind of the idea, like if these, like, yeah, it's like basically our guiding principle. Like if we're not being invited to be a part of these institutions, you know, these publications, whatever, let's like build our own thing. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. And then um, and I know what you mean, because I've heard that before, like with the table and I've heard one. Um, oh, who is it? It just slipped my mind. Like I saw her face. It was, oh, it was Ava DuVernay. She always says like, if no one opens a door, like build a door. And yeah, all of those different concepts, I, I think they are yes, so important. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> They're so important. Yeah. It's like, don't wait around. Like if nobody, if nobody's going to let you do it, just, just go yeah. out there and do it yourself. One of those building things, like build a longer table, build a bigger door. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I love it. Very inspirational. <laughs> Um, well, of course, we need to know how to follow you and Authority Collective. Awesome. Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. We're um, authoritycollective at gmail.com. Um, if you want to email us, ask questions, um, you know, get in touch for any other reason. Um, our website is um, authoritycollective.org. So authoritycollective.org. Um, and if you poke through this site, you'll be able to find a you know, a join us link, um, where if you, um, if you are a woman, non-binary or trans person of color working professionally in photography, um, film or virtual reality, augmented reality, um, you can join and we'll screen the applications and then invite you to our community. Um, so definitely get in touch. Um, we're also on Instagram, Authority Collective and on Twitter. Um, and on Twitter, we're actually the Authority C. So the authority C, because the whole thing, authority collective wouldn't fit. <laughs> yeah, but we're online. We're online. People can connect. We're pretty accessible. Um, just like one last thing about, you know, if there are folks out there who, you know, are starting in their careers or wanting to be in photography and film, like definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Like if the resources you're looking for aren't, you know, on our site or like anywhere else you can find online. We want to do what we can to connect you to them, you know, to not be dis- like not be discouraged by the, you know, by how hard it might seem to make it in this industry. Because even if you're not a full-time photographer, that's okay. Like if you're still making images and doing another full-time job, like 
you're still a photographer. And I think, you know, sometimes folks don't want to own that title, like if they are working a a part-time job, but if you're making images, you know, if you're doing the thing, even if it's not making you money necessarily, like you can still be a photographer. You're still a photographer. Um, But yeah, reach out, say hello. We're here for you. Awesome. Well, Javel, thank you so much for sharing your work with us, sharing Authority Collective with us. It is truly appreciated, and you've just been an awesome, awesome part of our day. Awesome. Thank you again for having me. Thanks so much for spending your time with Meraki Mentors. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with your friends on social media and your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Meraki Mentors Podcast for exclusive information on how you could be a part of our next episode or blog post. You've been listening to Meraki Mentors Podcast with Candace Howes. We're honored you chose to spend your time with us today. To learn more about today's guest or the podcast, visit MerakiMentorsPodcast.com. Don't forget to create and connect.